0: I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And And we're we're The the Trade Trade Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS, where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this next episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk APEP, chips, and some rants on the WTO, all on this next episode of The Trade Guys. Gentlemen, welcome back to The Trade Guys. Listeners, welcome back to The Trade Guys. We are back in the saddle. Let's talk about maybe one of the worst acronyms on planet Earth. It's APEP the american partnership for economic prosperity guys is this ipef for latin america this apep well it might be but it's really
1: hard to tell it's 11 partners 11 economies in the region it's an odd group but and and it is seems to be have some of the same topics as the uh, Indo-Pacific initiative, but it's a mystery. And uh, many of these economies already have free trade agreements with the United States. So it's not clear how you get much beyond zero tariffs and comprehensive protection of investment and the kinds of things that that are in these free trade agreements, but I guess they're going to try. You know, They talk about regional competitiveness and shared prosperity and inclusive and sustainable investment, whatever that might be. But that's what the fact sheet says. Now, for me, the story goes back almost 30 years. Uh, keep in mind, we're, 1999, which is 30 years ago, was when the negotiations for NAFTA were concluded. So the North American Free Trade Agreement, which was really the first economic outreach in the form of a trade agreement to... Latin America our Mexico our biggest neighbor was was added and that was very successful there was a grandiose vision shortly after called the free trade area of the Americas one of uh, bills former bosses ron brown then secretary of commerce staged a, a brilliant you know flashy meeting in miami and they agreed to free trade in the, in the hemisphere which was which was a great outcome with the only problem being they had a 10-year negotiation timeframe, which every single trade minister took as an eight-year paid vacation. And by the time you got around to the end of the 10 years, nothing had happened. So in fairness, there were other attempts, particularly by the Bush administration, beginning about 20 years ago. They got trade promotion authority from the Congress. Chile was the first free trade agreement passed in, in the hemisphere other than NAFTA. And Chile seemed to work pretty well. And the Bush administration was very active. And they tried for an agreement among the Andean region, who had some preference programs for the U.S. That fell apart midway through, but you still wound up with Colombia and Peru, bilateral agreements with the United States. The uh, Central American republics, five Central American republics, negotiated. They added in the Dominican Republic. And you have CAFTA-DR. Last but not least, Panama, concluded a free trade agreement, I think roughly in 2012. So this, this stretched out over a long period of time. And they're all very high standards. So question for me is, what are we doing with these people that we haven't already done? What's the goal for economic integration and shared prosperity that wasn't achieved by this basic framework? I don't know the answer.
0: Well, before we get the, get to the answer of that, since you brought up this flashy meeting in Miami that Ron Brown went to, I'm picturing Bill there in a white disco suit, a la John Travolta and Saturday Night Fever. Was that the case? <laughs>
2: No, it was not. Uh, I only went on one uh, trade mission when I was at Commerce, and that was with Bill Daley to China. Oh, that was good fun. And on another occasion, I can tell you stories, but uh, no white <laughs> suit for that one. But it, okay. Bill, Bill
1: was keeping bad things out of the hands of bad people in his job at the Commerce yeah. Department. Of course, the Commerce Department is everything from weather to fish and lighthouses and a few other things. So
2: We referred to my portfolio at the time as the speed bump on the information highway.
1: Uh, Well, you know, honestly, what I hope happens with these agreements is uh, with, with this process, whatever it might be, is that the administration take a hard look at whether we actually achieved anything. I honestly don't know, I I actually was involved in all these uh, Western Hemisphere trade agreements to one degree or another. Uh, Some of them looked like they were working. I can tell you I traveled to Chile uh, several times in the aughts, and Chile appeared to be getting more prosperous. Uh, You could see it in the age of the cars people were driving. You could see it with fewer people on the streets. It looked like things were working, and yet you step back from it. We have a free trade agreement with Nicaragua. And 20 years ago, Nicaragua was the second poorest country in the hemisphere, only beating Haiti. And today, after 10, at least 20 years of a free trade agreement, they're the second poorest country in the hemisphere. And so I'm not sure. You know, I actually thought they would work. I'll be honest. I worked worked on it pretty diligently because it was my company's interest to do so. But I also honestly thought the foreign policy case and the economic growth case was a pretty solid one, and uh, I have to say, it's hard to find success in all this—at least consistent success.
2: Bill, thoughts? Well, I'm—I'm—I was tempted to say APEP is IPEF light, <laughs> which is. <laughs> Is actually, uh, not-
1: if you could really be light versus IPEP.
2: <laughs> yeah. I, but I think it, it, in a way, it's, it's different in some respects. I think Scott made the point of the 11 other members. We already have trade agreements with nine of them. Only Ecuador and Uruguay are outside. So raises the question of, you know, what else, uh, the Scott raised, what else are we going to accomplish since we already have agreements with the others anyway? the big ones Brazil and Argentina are missing from the pack well, I'm not sure that's a surprise in either case and Going back to Scott's history, the the culprit, if you will, on the free trade area of the Americas was Brazil, which at the time did not want to do it. And when you take away at the time the biggest other potential partner, that kind of torpedoed the whole thing. Probably, you know, in in a way, this (laughs) raises odd questions of timing. Uh, Bolsonaro might have been willing to do this, but I think Lula was not before and will not be this time either. So I think the 11 are probably pretty much it, not including Nicaragua, by the way, Scott. The pillars, they've used some different words, but the pillars seem to be pretty much the same pillars as in IPEF, although there's not one that is specifically labeled trade. There's one labeled investment, which I think is probably code for infrastructure. And then you've got the supply chain one and you've got clean energy sustainability one they do have one on ensuring inclusive trade. I should take that back that there's nothing on trade, but it's basically, you know, the American agenda of happy talk and good things. And I think the same issue will come up with IPEF. Sooner or later, these countries are going to ask, what do, what do we get out of this? You know, and asking for labor reform and asking for regulatory reform, I think like we said a couple of weeks ago, good things. But they're not cost free, they're expensive in political terms for some of these countries. And asking them to go down that road is asking them to pay some costs. And I don't think we're offering anything.
0: Well, speaking of the politics of it, the administration has not yet signaled that it'll send APEP to Congress. Is that a wise decision?
2: No, it's a terrible decision. It's the same decision they made on IPEF. And it guarantees a a more difficult relationship with Congress than is necessary. Congress, you know, if you worked up there, as I did uh, on trade, the first thing you learn is Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, which says that Congress regulates interstate and foreign commerce. They believe this is their job. They believe in, at a minimum, there should be extensive consultation. To be fair, you could never consult enough to make Congress happy. I mean, I joked about this when I was there, that for Congress, consultation means the administration comes up and says, we don't know what to do. Tell us what to do. And for the administration, consultation means we give you an hour's advance notice on the announcement. The truth is somewhere in between, but saying that you're not going to even submit it is kind of giving them the back of the hand. It's also telling the countries that we're not going to make any significant concessions.
1: That's the point. That's the point exactly, because these countries study our politics more carefully than we do. And they know full well that you can't cut a tariff without the Congress. And so... They're going to take the signal that this is not going to be sent to Congress as no change in U.S. trade law. In other words, we get to sit and listen to lectures and then do some politically hard things that the U.S. is maybe asking us to do, and we get nothing in return. That's uh, not a good recipe.
0: Well, it's so true that they study our politics intensely. My friend, former ambassador to the U.S., Jaime Aleman from Panama, he knew D.C. better than anybody I've ever known. And now it works? He's a good vote counter because he. Has that's to right. Be. Yeah, that's right. Well, we'll have to watch and see what happens with APEP. But uh, as Bill said before we got on the air, it's no uffle paw. Good grief. <laughs> Uffle apf, ipf. IPEF. Oh, my goodness. At
2: least they're pronounceable, though, Andrew. I, mean, I wouldn't no. have
0: been able to pronounce Uffle if you hadn't shown me the
2: way, Bill. There's just no way. We need a Wheel of Fortune episode for, on, on trade agreements. Well, that's a good point. But at least they're trying to get some vowels into these things so that you can you can save them. All right. Well, we'll do an acronym episode at a later date. Let's shift you to— You know, I mean,
0: they're, they're, that would be a contest. My goodness. No, no, that would be something, wouldn't it? Well, let's shift a second and talk about chips. We love to talk chips. Last week, the Netherlands, Japan, and the United States purportedly reached a deal to join the October 7th chip controls, although there was no formal announcement that's been
2: made. Is this really a deal? I think so. I don't think it will be announced in detail. Uh, I mean, this is a security issue. I don't think any of the three countries have an interest in being very specific about what they're going to do. I think the United States would like to make it as public as it can because they want to declare victory. And since they've been saying and everybody has been telling them that the controls that we imposed on China in October aren't going to really be effective unless you can get the other countries that are also producers on board. And more than a few people, including us, commented on the anomaly of the U.S. doing this unilaterally in October, which... Normally, you get people on board before you do it, and then you do it multilaterally in the beginning, uh, from the beginning. And they didn't do that, which was kind of an admission that they couldn't get the others on board at that time. I think they have now, and uh, that's a good thing. Their view, I talked to somebody in in the administration about this. I think they felt that they were already getting good cooperation from the chip producers on chip sales, which was part of the controls. The remaining piece of the puzzle, which was dealt with last Friday, was tools. The lithography, equipment that is used to make the chips, and that's Japan and the Netherlands. And if with them on board, I think they've produced, you know, a, a multilateral approach. The remaining question is, you know, how long will that last? I think in the short run it will be pretty effective in denying the Chinese what they need to make more advanced chips than they're than they're making now. How long that will last? I don't know. I mean, the three big questions are always going to be the effect on Western company revenues. Our companies make a lot of money selling other stuff to China, other lower end chips to China. If we cut off too much basically we shoot ourselves in the foot by denying our companies the revenue they need second is this going to speed up the chinese effort to develop their own tools and their own ships i think the answer to that is certainly yes and the third thing which is the most interesting is is this going to create the design out problem where third countries possibly including the dutch for example try to develop machines that don't contain any american parts and components And don't contain any American technology and therefore are beyond the reach of our controls. Now, I think in the short run, that won't be possible, but this is a sector, as you know, that where, you know, long term is three or four years. Things happen fairly quickly. And I suspect, you know, that we're, we are creating an incentive for companies to do that in other countries. So we'll have to wait and see. I've asked the administration if they thought about that. Um, and the answer was, yes, they have. I think they right now are not worried about it. And right now, I don't think they have to worry about it, but they need to be worried about it a couple years from now.
1: You know, this is a very targeted program and it's targeted at the, the most sophisticated underlying technology for making the, the latest version of chips. Lithography, of course, have been around those of you who took high school Latin know it means writing on stone, but lithography as a printing process has been around for at least a couple of centuries. Most of the music printed in the 19th century was lithography. So, But this is very, very sophisticated at very tiny, tiny scale. To get the smallest possible device at the end, you need to map circuits at incredibly small Scale and you know it's it's been a tough technology for a long time. It's based in optics. There was a U.S. Defense Department uh, initiative, a consortium formed in the '80s called Sematech, and their main focus was lithography. So there's, there's been a key to the production of chips for quite some time. Japan had expertise because of their fine optics companies, Nikon and Canon, but it's really the company in Holland, ASML. It's one firm. They're a spin off of originally Philips, the big electronics company in, in Holland. ASML is really the leader in this space at producing the most. Precise the smallest scale lithographs for the production of chips. And to give you an idea, what Bill talked about the lost sales, one machine from ASML costs $150 million. That's a machine. But they're the ones who are doing it. And you know, we talk a lot about supply chains and resilience in supply chains. This is a one company supply chain, at least at the leading edge. It's it's just ASML.
2: It's composed of a lot of parts and components, uh, a number of which come from other European countries, particularly Germany. And one of the issues that needs to get sorted out is the Dutch relationship with the other countries in the EU. Export controls are viewed as a matter of national competence in the EU. And this is what the Dutch prime minister said the other day. That means the countries get to decide on their policy. The commission, though, has been trying to centralize that more and get everybody marching in the same direction. And to the extent that ASML, the Dutch government, have agreed to restrictions, that's going to affect what they buy from the Germans and from the French and, and from others. The other thing to worry about, if you uh, listeners want to sort of think about the stories that are going to be written in the next several months, The first one, I think, is going to be about overcompliance. These regulations are more carefully drafted than the Trump ones because they were the Trump people were notoriously bad at drafting these things. But these things are are more carefully written. But they have, uh, you know, they have gray areas. They have ambiguities. And there's a concern about overcompliance. The companies may end up not selling things to China, even though the regulations don't prohibit that excess of caution. If that happens, the impact on U.S. company revenues is going to be even bigger than is projected right now if they just comply to the letter. So I think that's, that's something that people have to worry about rather significantly going forward. Getting the Dutch to sort out their relationships with the rest of the EU may also be an issue because there's going to be a ripple effect in terms of consequence the other thing to keep in mind is that the highest end, uh, which is extreme ultraviolet lithography, EUV, was already controlled and has been controlled for a number of years. This regulation basically deals with one level below that called deep ultraviolet or DUV. And that, in a way, is, means that, we're going to, that we want the Dutch to start to stop selling some things that they had been selling. So there's going to be an economic impact pretty clearly on on them in particular, although their CEO most recently said that he thought there wouldn't be a big one. Yeah, the Japanese companies also make uh, the dev. Oh. And, of course, you know, the, one of the dilemmas that we face is if you're going to draw a line, whether it's a chip line or a tool capability line and say, you know, you can't sell anything above the line, but you can sell things below the line, eventually people ev- create products that operate just below the line by a little bit. and. That's, it's only a matter of time until that happens. Uh, and those are not controlled. And then, you know, what do you do then? You lower the line and cover them? Okay, then there, somebody will invent another one that's below the next line. So inevitably, that's going to happen. I think what you just have to do is decide what matters from a security point of view and draw your line there and then live with it. Well, So what are the legal and
0: commercial concerns that the Dutch and the Japanese have expressed about joining U.S. export controls on advanced ships to China?
1: Well, if, uh, if you look at uh, ASML's sales by region, roughly uh, 15% of their total sales in 2022 went to mainland China. ASML's biggest customer was, at least in terms of destination market, was, of course, Taiwan, which is where the big chip foundries are. And South Korea was number two, but China was number three. So, so the ASML, the company in Holland that makes the most sophisticated lithography, technology, machines, is their third biggest customer is China.
0: I just came up with a new nickname for Bill, Scott. Yes. We can call call him the Big Chip.
1: (laughs) Yes. Well, there's something affirming to that.
0: (laughs) That's good, right? Big Chip?
2: That or Dr. Chip. (laughs) Dr. Chip would be good. When I was teaching sixth grade, my students called me Doc for no reason that I ever understood because I'm not one, but it was... You know, get tired of correcting yeah, them. And Dr. Plus yeah. Dr. Was, Dr. Dr. And Chip sidekick. and his sidekick, Mini Chip. <laughs> <laughs> the other consequence that uh, Andrew was alluding to was that there's a legal issue, uh, particularly yeah. for the Netherlands, that for the european countries generally most of them the legal authority that they rely on to control exports is linked to the multilateral control regimes that exist which they're member all members of of which there are four the nuclear suppliers group the australia group which deals with chemical biological weapons the missile technology control regime which is self-explanatory and the uh, vasenaar arrangement uh, vasenaar being a town in the netherlands actually which covers dual use stuff and for the netherlands their legal authority to control items depends on whether the items are on the lists that any of those regimes maintain. And so, when the United States, and the United States doesn't have that, we have our statute gives us authority to control things unilaterally, whether they're listed or not. So, we don't have this problem. But for a European country, rather, uh, they can't just go in and control what they want without a change in their legal framework. Now, they can do that. I mean, they can pass a law. But it takes some steps and there may be some resistance to it. So it makes the, the, uh, this whole process more complicated on their end. And that may be why uh, you're not going to see a lot of details about this agreement right now, because I think to enforce it, the Dutch are going to have to take some internal steps in order to enable them to honor their commitments.
0: Bill, let's talk about something else that you've recently written about, which is, of course, the WTO. The U.S. recently appealed its national security cases at the WTO. Does this represent a U.S. attempt to reaffirm some of its commitment to the WTO?
2: No, it's a good rant coming on here, fair warning. I knew it. I, I knew, knew it. It's exactly the opposite. It's really unconscionable. I'm so upset about this. I'm probably going to write about it week after week after week. It is, un- it is clearly undermining the WTO because it, what we basically said is, you know, we lost and so we're going to ignore it. Technically, we are appealing the decisions, which uh, because there's no appellate body means we get away with it. It's called appealing into the void because the rules maintain a country's right to appeal. We've indicated we're going to accept, uh, exercise that right. But because there's no place to appeal, the case just sits there and the sinners, in this case us, get to keep on sinning. And it's frustrating because it basically, our position is the sovereignty argument that an international organization can't tell us what to do, which is, you know, an argument against all international agreements all the time. And, you know, the whole point of international agreements and international institutions like the WTO is that sure, you know, it ties our hands, but it ties everybody else's hands as well. And we do better when there are rules. And when the United States stands up and says, we lost, but so we're going to ignore the rules, that tells everybody else. They can do the same thing and get away with it. So it is really going to be a breakdown in discipline. And I think one that at least in one case doesn't pass the laugh test. I mean, one of these cases was about labeling imports from Hong Kong. And the issue was we wanted to label them made in China because we claim that Hong Kong is no longer is really now part of China and not a quasi independent entity. And Hong Kong was labeled made in Hong Kong. And our argument was that, you know, labeling them made in Hong Kong was a threat to our national security. Nobody can explain that and nobody can believe that. Yet we are maintaining that. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Scott, I'm sorry, your turn to rant. No. <clears throat>
1: yeah, I have a parallel rant, although mine's more in sadness than anger because look, we had a lot of fun during the Trump administration talking about, you know, their disregard for previous agreements. In fact, there were, there was some trade wag made a, an amusing red trucker hat with white print on it that said, make WTO Gat again, <laughs> which is a really inside joke, but that's exactly what disabling the dispute settlement process appellate body did. They went back to the GATT style dispute settlement. But look, the, the Biden administration's promise was to respect international institutions and to use them effectively. And I look at this, I look at this decision on, on national security and I said, so what is your objective for the rules-based trading system? What exactly are you trying to accomplish? And um, then I actually agree with Bill. I said, if administration were genuinely trying to undermine the WTO, what would they do? What would look different about their actions? I mean, this really looks malicious when you get down to it. It just—I can't—I can't explain it. Particularly, the incoming promises were 180 degrees different. Uh, two rants for the price of one today.
0: Great rants, gentlemen. As always, thank you for helping us understand what's really going on out there in the world of trade. Um, we appreciate it, and we'll be back next week.
2: See you then. See you then. Yep.